the borough reeves and constables of manchester and salford most earnestly recommend the peaceable and well-disposed inhabitants of those towns as much as possible to remain in their own houses during the whole of this day monday august the sixteenth inst and to keep their children and servants within doors it is now the sixteenth of august the day of the much-anticipated meeting at st peter's field to be addressed by orator henry hunt but before we come to what happened on that day a reminder of the events that led up to the meeting mrs isabella bank's novel the manchester man was published in eighteen seventy six it tells the story of the rise of industrial manchester through the life of its hero jabez clegg the novel includes a fictionalized but accurate account of the peterloo massacre banks begins with the political unrest that followed the end of the napoleonic wars in eighteen fifteen lawrence aspinall ben travis and john walmsley it should be noted are entirely fictional members of the manchester and salford yeomanry people had been naturally sanguine that the conclusion of peace would inaugurate prosperity that commerce would flourish with the flourish of pens on the parchments of a treaty but the war had been of too long continuance too universal too destructive of life and property and crops when grounds lie untilled for years when swords reap harvests that should have been left for the sickle when cattle are slaughtered wholesale for unproductive soldiery or for lack of provender when orchards and vineyards which have taken years to mature are given to the flames there can be no sudden readjustment of commercial matters food products are the staple of trade which is only a system of exchange facilitated by coin and paper what could a food producing continent down trod by the iron hoof of war have to offer in exchange for our textile fabrics and hardware trade could not revive until there was food to sustain it yet the mass of the people in 1816 still further impoverished by a deficient home harvest imputed the evil to defective legislation and the exclusion of foreign corn save at famine prices and discontent became universal strangely enough the agricultural districts which the corn laws were supposed to protect were the first to cry out against them and to break out into riot not Manchester, Oldham, Nottingham and the manufacturing centres. This year closed on a popular demand for parliamentary reform, but not a riotous one. Sunday schools had created readers on humble hearths, and William Cobbett supplied them with books and pamphlets bearing on their own rights and wrongs. They were read with avidity, and he became a power. He counselled peaceful persistence, not armed resistance. Hamden clubs were formed all over the country in which the political questions of the day were discussed with as much freedom as stringent law permitted. Public speakers and poets, of whom Samuel Bamford was one, arose from the ranks of the working classes, and the men banded together under such leadership called themselves radical reformers, a title which soon degenerated into radicals. The members of these rapidly spreading clubs subscribed a penny a week each. Delegates were sent to meet and debate together, and on the 4th of November 1816, a large meeting was held in St. Peter's Field, Manchester, strangely enough the site of the present Free Trade Hall, to take into consideration the distressed state of the country. 
Other meetings were held by the reformers and their delegates, and on the 13th of January 1817, their political opponents held a counter-meeting to consider the necessity of adopting measures for the maintenance of the public peace. For certainly the meeting of large masses of disaffected people, however peacefully disposed in the outset and individually, becomes threatening in the aggregate. No one cares much for a grain of gunpowder, but mass the grains into pounds and the pounds into tons, and there is certainly need of precaution in dealing with it. Amongst the precautionary measures deemed necessary for the protection of the peace and the suppression of seditious meetings were the suspension of the Habeas Corpus Act and the enrolment of the Manchester and Cheshire Yeomanry Cavalry under the command of Sir T.J. Trafford. Lawrence Aspinall, Ben Travis and John Walmsley joining the Corps. On the 24th of March, since known as Blanket Monday, a large number of men assembled in St Peter's Field with blankets upon their shoulders with the openly expressed design of walking to London to lay their grievances before George, the Prince Regent, in person. The blankets were intended for coverlets on the wayside beds Mother Earth alone would spread for them. The meeting was dispersed by military, the newly formed yeomanry distinguishing themselves by trapping a number of the blanketeers who had prematurely set out and who had not got farther than Stockport. This was the signal for widespread alarm and for Joseph Nadine to prove his discrimination and vigilance by scenting out imaginary plots and arresting suspected plotters whom he tied together, handcuffed, ill-used, and hauled to prison or before magistrates, whether for acquittal or conviction, for little other reason than the dangerous power given by the suspension of the Habeas Corpus Act. He was a big, blustering, overbearing fellow, with a large, grizzled head, closely set on strong, broad shoulders, with overhanging brows drawn close, and a sallow skin and his officious zeal in arresting such persons as Samuel Banford, the weaver poet, Thomas Walker, and the amateur actors he had earlier laid hands on at a public house in Ancoats Lane, laying to their charge plots which had their origin in his own brain, did more to embitter the people against their rulers than those dust-blinded rulers suspected. The radical agitation reached its climax in 1819, when our friend Jabez was a well-formed, well-favoured young man of twenty, high in the estimation of his master and mistress. Popular rights had found a fresh champion in Henry Hunt, the son of a well-descended Wiltshire yeoman, a man of gentlemanlike bearing and attire, agreeable features, mobile in expression, and dull grey eyes, which lit like fiery stars when in the fervour of his speech his soul shone out of them. Orator Hunt, as he was ironically dubbed by those who loved him not, was the very man to move the people as he himself was moved. His energy and fervid eloquence carried his hearers with him. And as he was wont to lash himself to a fury which streaked his pale eyes with blood and forced them forward in their sockets, no wonder the Manchester magnates were afraid of his influence on the multitude or that the Prince Regent should issue a proclamation against seditious meetings and writings, or the military drilling of the populace then carried on, with so fervid an orator to inflame them. 
when Henry Hunt made a public entry into Manchester and attended the theatre the same evening, a disturbance ensued. He was expelled, and the next evening the theatre was closed to preserve peace. Then a watch and ward, composed of the chief inhabitants, was established. A meeting called by the radicals was prohibited, but that did not deter the calling of another on St Peter's Field on the 16th of August, when a couple of large wagons were boarded over to serve as temporary hustings, whence a rater hunt from the midst of his friends might address the assembled multitude. Francis Bruton describes the scene in Manchester on the morning of the 16th as the authorities awaited the arrival of the processions from Manchester and the surrounding districts. The long-expected day came at last. The morning was fine, and later on the heat was considerable. In Manchester the magistrates saw fit to publish a notice recommending the peaceable and well-disposed inhabitants to remain in their own houses during the whole day, and to keep their children and servants within doors. The Reverend Jeremiah Smith, then the High Master of the Free Grammar School, afterwards stated at the trial that most of the shop windows were closed, and that as there was a general feeling of apprehension, he dismissed his day-boys after breakfast, and eventually went home and locked himself and his boarders into his house in Long Millgate, the very house from which the boy de Quincey had slipped away in the deep luster of a cloudless July morning not twenty years before. As early as nine in the morning, people began to assemble in St. Peter's Fields. The magistrates met first at the Star Inn, and at eleven o'clock adjourned to the house of Mr. Buxton in Mount Street. By this time the troops employed had been posted out of sight in the streets, lying just off the open space where the gathering was held. Their disposition seems to have been as follows. One troop of the Manchester and Salford Yeomanry was concealed in Pickford's Yard, off Portland Street, Another troop seems to have been in Byram Street. Their commander was Major Trafford, but the first troop seems to have been led on this occasion by Hugh Burley, who only a few years before had opposed the new Corn Law. The Cheshire Yeomanry, in their full strength of eight troops, i.e. at least 400 men, had assembled on Sale Moor at 9am, and arrived at their assigned station in St John Street soon after 11 Two squadrons of the 15th Hussars, i.e. over 300 men, were in Byram Street, and a troop of the same regiment was in Lower Mosley Street, acting as escort to a troop of the Royal Horse Artillery with two long six-pounders. The guns thus commanded the principal approach to the area. The above are mounted troops. Besides these, nearly the whole of the 31st Infantry were concealed in Brazennose Street, and several companies of the 88th Infantry were in ambush in the neighbourhood of Dickinson Street. The names of the commanders of all these detachments are given, and the whole force was under the direction of Lieutenant Colonel Lestrange. The hustings, which consisted of two carts and some boards, were erected just below Windmill Street, about 100 yards from Mount Street. The speakers faced northwards, towards the Friends' Meeting House, close to which was the Friends' School. Here, near a few oak trees, a quantity of loose timber was lying about, of which we shall hear later on. It was about twelve o'clock when a strong double cordon of several hundred special constables was drawn between Mr. Buxton's house in Mount Street and the hustings. They formed a lane by which, if necessary, the magistrates could communicate with the speakers. For many miles around, delegations were gathering to prepare for the long march into Manchester, Harriet Martineau takes up the tale. 
all was now busier preparation than ever in every town and village around manchester it is remarkable that the great manufacturing metropolis itself seems to have remained comparatively unaroused and not to have contributed anything like its due proportion of numbers to the mighty reform gathering indeed while bodies of three four or five thousand persons are spoken of as pouring in from almost every one of the two-and-thirty points of the compass and every separate neighbouring district was represented on the ground by its dense and extended array we do not recollect that any distinct body of manchester reformers is mentioned at all some of the accounts indeed expressly state that the manchester working people generally took little part in the demonstration and that such of them as joined the crowd seemed to have come for the most part only as lookers-on we believe that bamford's animated description of the procession of his fellow-townsmen the reformers of middleton who put themselves under his guidance conveys a fair impression of the spirit in which the affair was entered upon by the generality of those engaged in it by eight o'clock on the morning of monday the sixteenth of august eighteen nineteen he tells us the whole town of middleton might be said to be on the alert some to go to the meeting and others to see the procession the like of which for such a purpose had never before taken place in that neighbourhood the marshal de ray was headed by twelve youths in two rows each holding in his hand a branch of laurel as a token of amity and peace says bamford and therefore we must suppose representing the olive on this occasion there were two silk flags the one blue the other green with unity and strength liberty and fraternity parliament's annual and suffrage universal inscribed on them in letters of gold and a cap of liberty of crimson velvet with a tuft of laurel was borne aloft between them the men marched five abreast every hundred having a leader distinguished by a sprig of laurel in his hat over these centurions were superior officers similarly decorated bamford himself as conductor of the whole walked at the head of the column with a bugleman by his side to sound his orders before setting out the entire number of not less than three thousand men having formed a hollow square while probably as many more people stood around them and silence having been obtained bamford shortly addressed them i reminded them that they were going to attend the most important meeting that had ever been held for parliamentary reform and i hoped their conduct would be marked by a steadiness and seriousness befitting the occasion and such as would cast shame upon their enemies who had always represented the reformers as a mob-like rabble but they would see they were not so that day i requested they would not leave their ranks nor show carelessness nor inattention to the order of their leaders but that they would walk comfortably and agreeably together not to offer any insult or provocation by word or deed nor to notice any persons who might do the same by them but to keep such persons as quiet as possible for if they began to retaliate the least disturbance might serve as a pretext for dispersing the meeting if the peace officers he added should come to arrest himself or any other person they were not to offer any resistance but suffer them to execute their office peaceably when at the meeting they were to keep themselves as select as possible with their banners in the centre 
so that if individuals straggled or got away from the main body, they would know where to find them again by seeing their banners. And when the meeting was dissolved, they were to get close around their banners and leave the town as soon as possible, lest, should they stay drinking or loitering about the streets, their enemies should take advantage and send some of them to the new bailey. He also told them that, in conformity with a rule laid down by the committee, no sticks or weapons of any description would be allowed to be carried in the ranks, and those who had such were requested to put them aside. In consequence of this order, he states, many sticks were left behind, and a few only of the oldest and most infirm amongst us were allowed to carry their walking staves. There is reason, however, to believe that sticks were carried to the meeting in greater numbers by some of the other parties. I may say with truth, continues Bamford, speaking of the body under his own command, that we presented a most respectable assemblage of labouring men. All were decently, though humbly attired, and I noticed not even one who did not exhibit a white Sunday shirt, a neckcloth, and other apparel, in the same clean, though homely condition. After their leader's speech, which was received with cheers, they resumed their marching order, and, the music having struck up, set out at a slow pace. They were soon joined by the Rochdale people, the united numbers making probably six thousand men. A hundred or two of women, mostly young wives, preceded the column. About as many girls, sweethearts of the unmarried lads, danced to the music, or sung snatches of popular songs. Even some children went forward with them, although a score or two of others were sent back, while some hundreds of stragglers walked alongside. As they proceeded, they received various accessions to their ranks. At Newton, not far from Manchester, Bamford was beckoned to by a gentleman to whom he was known, one of the partners in a firm in whose employment the reform leader had lately been. Taking Bamford's hand, he said kindly, though in a tone expressing some anxiety, that he hoped no harm was intended by all those people that were coming in. Bamford replied that he would pledge his life for their entire peaceableness. I asked him to notice them, he continues. Did they look like persons wishing to outrage the law? Were they not, on the contrary, evidently heads of decent working families, or members of such families? No, no, I said, my dear sir, and old respected master, if any wrong or violence take place, they will be committed by men of a different stamp from these. He said he was very glad to hear me say so. He was happy he had seen me, and gratified by the manner in which I had expressed myself. I asked, did he think we should be interrupted at the meeting? He said, he did not believe we should. Then, I replied, all will be well. And shaking hands with mutual good wishes, I left him, and took my station as before. After they had entered Manchester, they heard that, among other parties which had preceded them, the Lees and Saddleworth Union had been led by Dr. Healy, walking before a pitch-black flag, with staring white letters, forming the words, equal representation or death, love, two hands joined, and a heart, all in white paint, and presenting one of the most sepulchral-looking objects that could be contrived. The idea of my diminutive friend, observes Bamford, leading a funeral procession of his own patients, such it appeared to me, was calculated to force a smile 
even at that thoughtful moment. Samuel Bamford continues the story as his party approaches Manchester. At Blakely, the accession to our ranks and the crowd in the road had become much greater. At Harperhay we halted, whilst the band and those who thought proper refreshed with a cup of prime ale from Sam Ogden's tap. When the bugle sounded, every man took his place, and we advanced. From all that I had heard of the disposition of the authorities, I had scarcely expected that we should be allowed to enter Manchester in a body. I had thought it not improbable that they, or some of them, would meet us with a civil and military escort, would read the riot act if they thought proper, and warn us from proceeding, and that we should then have nothing to do but turn back and hold a meeting in our town. I had even fancied that they would most likely stop us at the toll gate, where the roads forked towards Collyhurst and Newtown. But when I saw both those roads open, with only a horseman or two prancing before us, I began to think that I had overestimated the forethought of the authorities, and I felt somewhat assured that we should be allowed to enter the town quietly, when, of course, all probability of interruption would be at an end. We had got a good length on the higher road towards Collyhurst, when a messenger arrived from Mr Hunt, with a request that we would return and come the lower road, and lead up his procession into Manchester. I at first determined not to comply. I did not like to entangle ourselves and the great mass now with us in the long hollow road through Newtown, where, whatever happened, it would be difficult to advance or retreat or disperse, and I kept moving on. But a second messenger arrived, and there was a cry of, Newtown, Newtown! And so I gave the word, left shoulders forward, and running at the charge step, we soon gained the other road, and administered to the vanity of our great leader by heading his procession from Smedley Cottage. At Newtown, we were welcomed with open arms by the poor Irish weavers who came out in their best drapery and uttered blessings and words of endearment, many of which were not understood by our rural patriots. Some of them danced and others stood with clasped hands and tearful eyes, adoring almost that banner whose colour was their national one and the emblem of their green island home. We thanked them by the band striking up St. Patrick's Day in the morning, they were electrified, and we passed on, leaving those warm-hearted suburbans capering and whooping like mad. Having squeezed ourselves through the gully of a road below St Michael's Church, we traversed Blakely Street and Miller's Lane, and went along Swan Street and Oldham Street, frequently hailed in our progress by the cheers of the townspeople. We now perceived we had lost the tail of our train, and understood we had come the wrong way, and should have led down Shude Hill, and along Hanging Ditch, the Market Place, and Deansgate, which route Hunt and his party had taken. I must own I was not displeased at this separation. I was of an opinion that we had tendered homage, quite sufficient to the mere vanity of self-exhibition, too much of which I now thought was apparent. Having crossed Piccadilly, we went down Mosley Street, then almost entirely inhabited by wealthy families. We took the left side of St Peter's Church, and at this angle we wheeled quickly and steadily into Peter Street, and soon approached a wide unbuilt space, occupied by an immense multitude, which opened and received us with loud cheers. 
we walked into that chasm of human beings and took our station from the hustings across the causeway of Peter Street, and so remained, indistinguishable from without, but still forming an almost unbroken line, with our colours in the centre. Francis Bruton Detachments of reformers were streaming along the main roads towards Manchester, with bands playing and banners flying, and caps of liberty held aloft. These were red-peaked caps of Phrygian shape, and had been used as symbols by the revolutionists in France. The cap is supposed to have been employed as a symbol of the manumission of a slave in Roman times. We have actual details of several of these processions, the Middleton, Royton and Chatterton parties, the Rochdale section, the Saddleworth troop, the Oldham group, and those from Stockport, from Pendleton, from Ashton and from Bury. The march of the Middleton and Rochdale detachments is graphically described by Bamford, who led the first, the whole contingent numbering, according to his estimate, about 6,000 men, with numbers of women and children. The party included some hundreds of married women and several hundred girls, who danced and sang. We may stand by Bamford's monument in Middleton churchyard today, and looking down the hill, picture the scene. On the monument are inscribed these words of John Bright. Bamford was a reformer when to be so was unsafe, and he suffered for his faith. Leaving these, we turn to the Oldham contingent. They met on the village green, Bent Grange, at nine, and were there joined by the Chatterton section. The Chatterton banner is still in existence. It was made of white and green silk, measured about twelve feet by nine feet, and bore the usual mottoes of the reformers. The Royton section carried two banners of red and green silk. The second is of special interest. It was inscribed, The Royton Female Union, let us die like men and not be sold like slaves. It was afterwards captured by the Cheshire Yeomanry and was produced as evidence against the reformers in the trial at York in the following year. The most beautiful of all the banners was said to be one of white silk carried by the Oldham people but the banner which furnished the most important evidence in the trial at York was a black one, carried in the procession of the Saddleworth, Lees and Mosley Union. It was inscribed, Equal representation or death. Unite and be free. No boromongering. Taxation without representation is unjust and tyrannical. And it bore figures of justice holding the scales and two hands clasped. After the lapse of a century, the talk of the terrible danger hidden behind this banner on the part of counsel at the trial and public speakers elsewhere may appear somewhat ludicrous. The Alderman Royton colours were escorted by some two hundred women dressed in white. The procession was joined later by the Failsworth Radicals. Altogether, there seem to have been sixteen banners displayed at the meeting with five caps of liberty. As the contingents approached Manchester, horsemen rode out in various directions to meet them, and returned to report to the assembled magistrates. One of these scouts was Mr. Francis Phillips. In his Exposure, he tells how he rode along the turnpike road leading to Stockport, and at a place called Ardwick Green, about one and a half miles from Manchester Exchange, met a regiment of reformers marching in file, principally three deep. This column, 1,400 or 1,500 strong, marched extremely well, observing the step, though without music. It included about 40 women, and the colours were handsome, and inscribed, 
no corn laws, and universal suffrage. Mr. Phillips is careful to add, nearly half of the men carried stout sticks. He slipped back to Manchester by another road and reported these facts to the magistrates. Immediately afterwards, the column carried its colours into St. Peter's Fields, and Phillips then took up his station in the cordon of special constables. From the evidence at the trials we obtain details of the Berry contingent, five abreast and three thousand strong, with many women, and of that from Pendleton, and the Reverend Edward Stanley tells how he met the reformers from Ashton. Mr. Archibald Prentice, standing at a window, watched the crowd stream down Moseley Street. I never, he says, saw a gayer spectacle. There were haggard-looking men, certainly, but the majority were young persons in their best Sunday suits, and the light-coloured dresses of the cheerful, tidy-looking women relieved the effect of the dark fustians worn by the men. The marching order of which so much was said afterwards was what we often see now in the processions of Sunday school children and temperance societies. To her eyes, the numerous flags seemed to have been brought to add to the picturesque effect of the pageant. Slowly and orderly, the multitude took their places round the hustings. Our party laughed at the fears of the magistrates, and the remark was that if the men intended mischief, they would not have brought their wives or their children with them. I passed round the outskirts of the meeting and mingled with the groups that stood chattering there. I occasionally asked the women if they were not afraid to be there, and the usual laughing reply was, What have we to be afraid of? Mr. John Benjamin Smith, who watched the meeting from a window in Mrs. Orton's house, next door to Mr. Buxton's in Mount Street, says, We reached there at about half-past eleven o'clock, and on our way saw large bodies of men and women, with bands playing and flags and banners bearing devices. No corn laws, reform, etc. There were crowds of people in all directions, full of good humour, laughing and shouting and making fun. It seemed to be a gala day with the country people, who were mostly dressed in their best, and brought with them their wives, and when I saw boys and girls taking their father's hand in the procession, I observed to my aunt, These are the guarantees of their peaceable intentions. We need have no fears. And so we passed on to Mrs. Orton's. Harriet Martineau As other parties successively arrived, they became more and more enclosed, till they finally stood about the centre of the vast multitude. About half an hour after their arrival, reiterated shouts proclaimed the near approach of the great man of the day. Hunt came, preceded by a band of music and flags flying, standing up in an open barouche, on the box of which sat a woman who, it afterwards appeared, had made no proper or original part of the show, but had only been hoisted into the carriage as it passed through the crowd, while a number of his male friends were seated around him. Their approach, says Bamford, was hailed by one universal shout from probably eighty thousand persons. The mysterious woman in Henry Hunt's barouche, who is misidentified in several accounts of the meeting, was in fact Mary Files, president of the Manchester Female Reform Society. Dressed in white, along with other female reformers, she joined Henry Hunt's party at Smedley Cottage and sat on the hustings alongside him. Following Hunt's arrest, Mary Files was badly wounded by a sabre-cut across her body while attempting to leave the scene in Hunt's barouche. So God bless Henry Hunt, me boys, with Henry Hunt we'll go. 
We'll mount the cap of liberty in spite of Nady Joe.